If you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, page 809 in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, page 809 in your pew Bibles. The last time we were in Matthew chapter 5, we looked at the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I asked the question, what is the hungriest you have ever been, and what were you hungry for? I stated that every person ever born except for Jesus the Christ has this never ending internal desire to be filled or satisfied, and that many try to fulfill that inner desire externally. And I began by quoting parts of Ecclesiastes and how King Solomon compared that to a chasing after the wind. I then pointed to what Isaiah preached in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, when he said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. We saw how Isaiah was surrounded by people who called themselves God's people, yet they were chasing after the other things or the things that the other nations possessed by way of the false gods that they served, laboring and spending the money they made from their labor on that which could never satisfy. We ended by coming right back to Matthew's gospel and were reminded that instead of seeking what the world is seeking, we are to seek those things that are free. We are to, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, which is everything concerning the full care and provisions for your life. Today, as we look at the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, I want to begin with a few self-reflecting questions, as I did last time. And these questions I need to ask you, and I want you to think about them. My first question is, what were you like before you gave your life to Christ? What were you like before you gave your life to Christ? Let your mind think on that for a hot minute and then move on. I don't want you to go back to those quote-unquote glory days. They weren't glory days. They were terrible days. Were you self-centered? Were you proud? Were you quick to anger and impatient? Do you think back on those days and cringe the way you used to be? Thankfully, most of us have seen some growth in our walk with Christ. Maybe now we're a little more patient because we recognize that God was so patient with us for so many years. Or maybe we're speaking to others with more humility because God has revealed how totally unworthy we are to receive his never-ending love. Hopefully the fruit, the fruit from our growth in patience and humility will create in us a strong desire to actually have mercy on others because God has shown and continues to show us incredible mercy every day. This morning we're going to look at this great call for God's children to be merciful as I've titled this sermon, Merciful People 
from a merciful God. And my two points for this morning's sermon are point number one, mercy works by grace. And point number two, grace works through mercy. So follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Once again, it's page 809 in your pew Bibles. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. At this time, I'll ask you to pray with me and for me. Father, I thank you for your goodness towards us this morning, Lord, and and bringing us to this, this place, which is an awesome place, where we get to worship you. We get to hear the word of God. We get to sing praises to your holy name and give thanks. We get to fellowship with people who have the same spirit, who share in the same eternity, Lord God. I thank you so much for this time. I pray that uh, you would work through me, Lord, that your word would come forth in all accuracy, honesty, and boldness. And may it change all of our hearts, Lord. All of this is for your glory. Please make us more merciful people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Point number one. Mercy works by grace. One of God's most dominant characteristics in dealing with mankind is his mercy. The psalmist tells us the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Psalm chapter 145 and verse 8. And according to Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, God wants us to grow in this area as he declared, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. James Montgomery Boyce, a reformed Christian theologian and, 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 and former pastor or minister of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, believes that mercy is the most remarkable and unexpected of God's attributes. He said, there is nothing unexpected about condemnation, wrath, or reprobation. We deserve those. But that God should extend mercy to sinners and so save some of them from his wrath is extraordinary. Since God places such an emphasis on mercy, it's important that we actually understand what it is. According to Easton's Bible Dictionary, mercy is compassion for the miserable. Its object is mercy or misery. By the atoning sacrifice of Christ, a way is open for the exercise of mercy towards the sons of men, in harmony with the demands of truth and righteousness. In Christ, mercy and truth meet together. From God's perspective, mercy is withholding the just punishment that is rightly deserved while also having compassion on the helpless. Biblically, there are components of compassion, sympathy, patience, pity, and kindness. From a human perspective, it's being kind, forgiving, and compassionate to someone who has offended you when it's in your power to do otherwise. Essentially, it's making a conscious effort to see events through the eyes of another individual, to feel what he or she is feeling. 
This is why Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. It's also why Paul tells husbands to love their wives as they love their own bodies in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28. This is how we as husbands are sure to be merciful to them because that's what we would want. Even Jesus himself put himself in our shoes minus the sin. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews goes on to develop this thought by telling us how we should now respond as those who are now in Christ in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't miss that. Mercy, grace working together. Jesus was made like us, once again, apart from sin. So now he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And since that's the case, shouldn't we, who were born in sin, be sympathetic to others? Shouldn't we take time to say, well, wait a minute. If Christ can do this, who is absolutely righteous and without sin... If he can be sympathetic because he knows that we are mere dust, that we were made from the ground and we get weak sometimes. But if he can sympathize with us, how come we can't sympathize with one another, knowing that we are made just like our fellow man or woman? We see the grace of God working. We see the mercy of God changing us. As we think about these things, we have to get to a point where we honestly say that if someone refuses to show mercy and grace, they are actually showing their ungratefulness to God for the mercy he has freely granted them. They are behaving as if they don't know the weight, gravity, or depravity of their sin and don't care. On the other side of that are those who are truly grateful for what God has done in them and for them. These people continue to grow in grace, in mercy, through Christ-like maturity, through the word of God, through coming under the hearing of the word of God, through prayer, through self-reflection, through meditating on the word and being true to themselves and saying, I am not doing something right. I, I, something is wrong when I look at Christ through the word of God and I see my hardness of heart. There's something wrong. It's not, it's not jiving. It's not coming together. Something is wrong if I don't have the ability within me to say, I forgive you. Let's talk about this thing. Let's work it out. I want to look like Christ because I fail. Christ didn't fail. I see you because I have done what you have done or something similar. So let's talk about it. Let's work this thing out together. We should walk Hand in hand. As, as, as scripture says, how can uh, two walk together lest they be in agreement? How can two come together and, and, and sit in the same place of worship and yet there's something between us? The scripture says if you have something against your brother and you have this offer that you want to give to God, it says no, lay it to the side. You have to get that right. Why? Because you're sinning against me, the holy God. 
And God says, no, it, it cannot be that you represent me. We are no longer condescending or even disingenuous by saying things like, I would never do nothing like that. Really? God says, I need you to walk in humility. Because in humility, what we do is we confess, even within ourselves, that we could do or even have done something like that. When a, when, when a brother or sister has uh, uh, caused us trouble, instead of allowing animosity and bitterness towards them to build up, we earnestly seek an opportunity to show them mercy. And I use the phrase seek an opportunity because Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live, live peaceably with all. Right? It says if possible because if they are unrepented in their wickedness, then they're not putting themselves in a position to receive uh, mercy and reconciliation. To clarify what I'm saying, let's turn to Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. I just want to look at the first four verses of Luke chapter 17, and that's page 876 in your pew Bibles. Page 876 in your pew Bibles. Luke 17, verses 1 to 4. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Stop there for a minute. Prosekiti or prosekiti, meaning beware. Take heed. Be on guard. And I like that. I like that he puts it right there at the beginning of verse 3 because he wants you to think about what happens in the verse, first two verses. Somebody sins against you, then stop. Take care. Beware. Be careful. Pay attention to how you were sinned against and how you respond to how you were sinned against. Continuing in verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The world tells the Christian, you're supposed to be forgiving. Jesus was all about love, unconditional love. You're supposed to forgive me. Our friends and family tells us, you're supposed to give me. You're supposed to forgive me. You, you, you call yourself a Christian, you're supposed to forgive me. It's about unconditional love. However, the Lord says, rebuke them. If they repent, then forgive them. Rebuke them. Speak the truth in love. You committed a wrong. Maybe I was wrong. But we have to talk about this. There is a way to reconcile. The heart has to be willing to come in a, in, in a way where I might be wrong about this. Let's talk about it. Because I cannot continue to have a hard heart before you and then pray to God as if he's my father and everything is hunky-dory. We have to talk this out. We have to work this out. I cannot be a capital H hypocrite. I cannot do that and still get on my knees before God. Saying, Lord, help me when I am wrong. 
the world, our family and friends, when we want to talk about it and tell them that they are wrong, speaking the truth in love, they come back with, don't judge me. Don't judge me. But all Jesus is saying is that there can be no real relationship if there's no real repentance. If there's no acknowledgement of the wrong that was done, how can there be, there be any reconciliation or forgiveness? And there's a small verse with the major theme that runs throughout the Bible. It comes from King David when he was speaking to the Lord in Psalms chapter 32 and verse 5. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you, Lord. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. From Cain in Genesis to Jezebel in Revelation, confession and repentance is required by God if we're ever going to have a real relationship with God. Both Cain and Jezebel refused to acknowledge their sin and both paid severely for their unrepentant heart. Because of the mercy we have received by grace, we are told to confess our sins. Why? Because God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if God, the most forgiving and merciful being the world has ever known, requires confession and repentance from us in order to establish and maintain an intimate and tender fellowship with him, who are we to think that we can bypass that when attempting to restore a harmonious and real relationship with one another? For those who have been sinned against, we're to pray for reconciliation. We should desire an opportunity to show those who have hurt or disappointed us mercy, even hoping and praying they will acknowledge they were wrong and repent so we can get back to walking in unity. Why? That they may see Christ in us. Why? That they may come to Christ. Why? And if I sound like your child, it's on purpose because it's effective. Your child keeps saying, why, why, why? And we keep answering. I don't know why we keep answering. When I grew up, it was a different story, but we keep answering. But they'll keep going with the why, why, why. But why do we pray? Why do we hope and desire reconciliation? Because God wants us to take part in their repentance. The Apostle James the Apostle James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering uh, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James 5, and verse, verses 19 and 20. If you're dealing with a person who's struggling with any particular sin, we ought to pray for a heart of compassion towards them until we get a heart of compassion towards them, to the point where we are willing to ask them, how can I help you? What can I do? What, just, just let me know and I will be there for you. What can I do to help you? That's what we should be asking instead of gossiping to someone else and pompously pondering, how did they ever get into that ridiculous situation? I can't believe they would do something like that. 
The scriptures warn us about thinking that way. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, Paul wrote, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning spiritually mature, should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also are tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Thinking that we are on some other type, higher level than the next person, uh, that's the beginning of our problem right there. That's why it is so hard to display mercy and forgiveness, because we think we are so up here that we would never do anything like that. The scripture says we are deceiving ourselves. In the parable of the unforgiving uh, servant, which could also be titled, Our Most Merciful God, or The Unmerciful Shall Be Punished, or The Wicked Are Doomed. Jesus illustrates how God requires those who have received mercy to be merciful to others. Let's turn there for a minute. I, I, I want to show you guys something. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 21 to 35, page 823 in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, page 823 in your Pew Bibles. Now, most of us know something about this powerful lesson on forgiveness, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, uh, but it serves as a good reminder for us. So I'm basically, basically going to read through it with just a, a couple of comments. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience, patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Lie. He could never pay back all that he owed in one lifetime. And out of pity, verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He's probably telling the truth. Since a denarii was one day's wage, that would be about a hundred days, he can pay this man his money. That's true repentance, by the way. Having a change of mind to the point that you are willing to right a wrong. Verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you 
Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Why do we not take heed to this warning? I think it's because we think it doesn't apply to us. However, if our heart is so hardened that we're unwilling to forgive someone who's seeking restoration and showing repentance, there's a good chance we really don't know God. Which means we really don't have a relationship with God. Which means our sins weren't forgiven at all. Which means we still owe God a sin debt and are going to pay for them on judgment day. A person who shows no or very little uh, mercy or compassion for people reveals that he or she has never really responded to the great mercy that God has shown them as if they're dead. But on the other hand, the person whose behavior is characterized by mercy gives evidence of life and genuine faith in Christ. They, they give evidence as someone who recognizes that every single one of their sins, past, present, and future, were nailed to the cross of Christ, and now they are free. The chains of sin have been broken. They can go before God as his child, forgiven. That is precious. I don't, I don't know if somebody who is hard-hearted and will not forgive someone who looks just like them, acts just like them, is weak just like them, gets the gravity that they are free or might be free. If they don't grasp that, something is wrong. Who are you worshiping? What was done at the cross? Does it matter? When we think about the cross, it's not about Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Put your name there. Take it personal. I want you to think about what happened. What, 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 what happened on that day on, on Calvary. And then look at your life and the things you think. We're not even talking about what you do. The sin that goes on in your heart daily. I'm not even talking about before you got saved. I'm talking about yesterday. I'm talking about this morning. The things that are enough to have you in hell crying and screaming for pain or because of the pain, because of the torment, because of the memories that I could have given my life to Christ seriously and I should have forgiven when I had a chance to forgive because of all that was forgiven me. God, like the master in the parable, forgave us fellow servants a huge debt. The cost for our sins against them was a price we could never pay, as the wages of sin is death. Jesus shed his blood for us. Considering what God has eternally forgiven us of, our fellows, fellow servants' uh, uh, sins against us are just temporary minor afflictions by comparison. It reveals we actually have a, a superficial understanding of grace 
and mercy, which are sometimes seen, seen, uh, seen as being separate, but they actually work together as they are interconnected, which brings me to my second point. Grace works through mercy. If you are a, a person who has uh, never been one to be merciful, even after you profess Christ, the words of the Apostle James should alarm you. In James chapter 2, verse 13, and if you're that person, I would ask you to write that verse down because it, 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 it could pay, play a part in your repentance. James chapter 2 and verse 13. James wrote, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Someone may say, Pastor Mike, I'm just not built like that. I'm just, it's just not in me. I'm praying. I, I, I know I need to change, but I've, I've never been one to forgive like that. I just hold these things to my heart, and I can't trust that person anymore. At one point in his life, St. Augustine would have said the same thing. But he didn't resign himself to stay that way. His prayer was, Lord, demand what you will and give what you demand. The Lord demands his people to wear mercy like a robe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's where I want to focus. God gave us the ministry of recon reconciliation. Now, for your, before your theological mind starts saying, well, that's talking about us sharing the gospel so that sinners will be reconciled to God. Now, what you just did is you just excused yourself from having to change. But I want you to take a deep breath and hear me out. The only reason we are new creations is because of God. He is the author of all the new that is to come. And I hear you also saying, oh, tell us something we don't know, Einstein. Right? But here's my point. In making us new, God removed our carnal mind and took us into his bosom. Right? This intimate relationship that we have with him. And he didn't stop there. He then gave us a ministry so vital, so precious. From the angry to the ignorant, God says, tell them about me and I am able to change them. I am able to mold them. I am able to grant them new life, to breathe into them, to write my laws on their heart, to give them a new perspective, an eternal perspective. So that every time somebody does something to them in the here and now, they're looking past that. They're looking to being with me throughout all eternity because of what I did by sending my son for them. They're able to get past this person and see that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's just a person that the enemy may be using to stumble you in your walk. To keep you from seeing God in his purity and holiness and keep you focused on the flesh so that you're angry where you can't even pray right. You can't even worship me right because you're thinking about that person and what they did to you in your small little world. That's all that matters to you. And God says, no, I'm able to take somebody like that and let them see who I am. 
and to walk with them and to love them so that they would know what real love looks like. Here's the thing. If God has committed us to reconciling the angry and the ignorant to himself, how in the world could we not be moved by that into seeking reconciliation with those who look just like us once again? In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, Paul wrote, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ and because of Christ forgive us? Was it only for the small, trivial offenses? Or was it also for those incredibly horrific sins we committed that we hope no one ever finds out about? Remembering there are no chapter breaks in the original. So we go from Ephesians 4, 32, right into chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, it says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There's mercy. There's mercy. He gave himself up for us. What? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God spared us of, of, of what we deserved and took it out on his son. But instead of imitating him and showing mercy, we would rather hold on to the power we have over someone by keeping them under condemnation, refusing to forgive them no matter how much repentance they have shown. We've got them down, and we're not letting them up. Mm -mm. By the way, that's how bitterness is developed, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, warns us by saying, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. By nature, we have a hard time showing mercy and forgiveness. So the scripture says, strive for peace. Fight for peace. Saying a heartfelt, I forgive you, doesn't just roll off the tongue for many of us. Even when we read Jesus' words from our text, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That barely moves the proud. It barely moves them. Right? In Psalms chapter 18, verses 24 to 26, King David appeals to the character of the merciful and their relationship to the righteous and the pure of heart, as opposed to the crooked. He says, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. What is it to have clean hands in God's sight? It's to do his will. What is it to, to, to be crooked in God's sight? It's to ignore his will. When we refuse to show mercy to the repentant, 
we are crooked in God's sight. When we're unwilling to strive for peace, it reveals we love ourselves too much to forgive anyone who has done us wrong. How dare they? Don't they know who I am? I'm too high and holy for that. It seems ridiculous, but unfortunately, according to scripture, this conceited and ungrateful behavior will only get worse as we approach the Lord's return. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we are told that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance, appearance of godliness, but denying it. Even as your father is merciful. And for those who uh, choose to ignore that command, just 10 verses later, in verse uh, 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So think about it. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Why do you not do, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do to be merciful? As I was preparing this sermon on mercy, I came across uh, a story concerning a man whose mother had his father killed. He dearly loved his father. They were close, real close. But his dilemma as a Christian man was whether or not he should have mercy on her and forgive her. I'm, uh, please bear with me. I'm just going to read his story for you. Um, here it goes. In early 1985, Gail Owens set in motion her husband's murder. The middle class mother would later admit that she spent months driving around crime ridden sections of Memphis looking for someone willing to harm her husband, Ron Owens. By February 17th of that year, she had found her man, a mechanic with a rap sheet. That night, she returned home after church with Stephen, when he was 12, and his brother Brian, who was 8. Stephen saw his father first. He lay bleeding on the living room carpet, having been beaten with a tire iron. Days later, Gail was arrested as an accessory to murder. A pastor and an aunt broke the news to the boys that their mother was behind it. Stephen's father had been his hero. He coached the church basketball team, and his mother sang in the, in the choir. Stephen had never even seen the two fight. He thought they were happy. Prosecutors told jurors at Gail's trial that she had gotten the household into financial trouble and wanted Ron killed for insurance money. I hated my mother, Stephen said. When she was sentenced to die, it mattered little to him. He already considered her dead. For 17 years, his feelings never wavered. Then his own son was born, and Stephen began to reconsider his relationship with the only parent he had left. But something else kept gnawing at him. God, he believes, teaches us to forgive those who hurt us, and you can't just pick what you want to forgive. After he began teaching at a Christian school, he discovered that a colleague was leading a prison Bible study attended by his mother. 
The man told Stephen his mother was a spiritual leader who acted as a great influence on her fellow inmates. Those things don't just happen, Stephen said, and they served as affirmation that I was doing what I was supposed to do. Stephen decided it was time for a face-to-face meeting. August 23, 2009 was a Sunday. So Stephen and his wife went to church as usual. Then they drove together to the Tennessee prison for women. When he saw his mother for the first time in 23 years, he opened his arms to embrace her. Gail sobbed and told Stephen she was sorry. Then they talked for nearly three hours. When the guard gave them a five-minute warning, Gail provided the opening Stephen had been praying for. She told Stephen again that she was sorry and asked for his forgiveness. I forgive you, Mom, he said. In a book he chronicled called uh, Set Free, Stephen writes, there was so much resentment and anger as forgiveness is a hard thing to maneuver. But it's one of those situations where you look back on it and if you'd known you were going to feel like this afterwards, you'd have done it earlier. I wanted to share that uh, story uh, because it speaks of an incredible gross act of sin that most of us will never have committed against us, yet it reveals an incredible amount of mercy that most of us will never have to display. And once again, the more you think about it, it only makes sense that those who call themselves followers of God will be more capable and more willing to display great acts of forgiveness, great acts of mercy, great acts of kindness. We have been shown so much mercy, so much forgiveness from God our Father. But unfortunately for many of us, when it comes to imitating God, our testimony sounds something like this. God is filled with wisdom, so I want to be filled with wisdom. God is unchanging in kind, so I want to be unchanging in kind. God is merciful to the unworthy, so I too want to be unchanging in kind. What happened? Why do we get stuck there? Through my last five sermons, including this one, as we have worked our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we know that for the poor in spirit, for those who mourn over sin, for the meek, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, when they see these words of Jesus, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, it moves the heart. It brings change. It brings a softening. Because this is our Father giving us his word through his spirit, which wrote the word and which dwells in us. So there's this this magnet type thing that says, this is right. I'm wrong. God has granted me great mercy, incredible mercy. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mark 9, 13a. What he was saying to those Pharisees who were listening close was, I desire my people to show these sinners and tax collectors the same type of mercy that I am showing everyone who bows the knee, everyone whom the Spirit of God has moved, everyone who calls themselves a follower of me. So to bring our time to a close, I'm going to reference... uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 28 to 32. 
There, I believe, uh, the Apostle Paul summarizes everything he was speaking about, specifically verses, chapters 9 to 11. And he brings it to a close by making this great, great, great comparison and relation of the elect from Israel and the elect out of all of the nations throughout the world. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The all-merciful God of the universe has sovereignly and providentially guided the history of mankind, both the disobedient and the obedient, so that in the end, he will gather his flock together from the four corners of the world, and perhaps that is why you are here today. If you are unsaved, or even unsure of your salvation and final destination, I pray that God would gift you or grant you grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. No Mary, no saints, no mother church, no priest, Jesus alone. He is the only one who died for the sins of all who would believe in him. At the end of the service, you are welcome to uh, speak to any member of this church any member of the church and ask them to pray for you, to pray that you would be saved. We all have issues, we all have problems, but those temporary problems cannot compare to your need for salvation, to deliver you from the torment and hell to come, to deliver you from the day of his wrath that is on the way. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, the gifts and calling by which God completes his plan of salvation will never change due to his unchanging character and un unending love for his people. My prayer is that God's merciful heart would spread throughout this place and create more merciful hearts right here. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I bless your holy name. I thank you for this time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you, Lord God, that we were on your mind before we were saved, before we cried out to you, before Christ went to the cross, we were on your mind. And there was a purpose, there was a point. Not to just die hoping that people would be saved, but to die knowing that your sacrifice would accomplish what it was intended, intended for, that it would be effective. Thank you so much, Lord God, for those whom you have called. We know your calling is, 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 is without repentance. Your calling is sure. Your calling is merciful. Thank you, Lord God. I pray that we would increase in mercy, that we would walk in the shoes of others, Lord God, that we would feel their pain as if it was ours, to love them, truly love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that we would give our lives even. 
thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your son. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have Jesus, the great high priest. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.